we're seeing the end of a lot of things and we're seeing the birth of some things, but we're in this in-between space. It's this liminal space, um, really. And I think we're not good at that. We have multiple bubbles now. They're going to pop at some stage. I see now that pastors are perhaps learning how to lead in difficulty so that in the future they can lead people through more difficulty. Continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Join your hosts, Brad Edwards and Bryce Hales, as they help you navigate a shifting cultural context with thoughtfulness and hope. All right. Well, Mark Sayers, uh, welcome back to the podcast. We're really excited to be talking again with you today. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, good to be here again. Yeah. So, Mark, we are in the middle of a series where we're calling Bait and Switch, The State of Pastors and How Everything Just Changed, and really asking the question, what in the world is going on with pastors? Um, So much of the cultural change over the last couple of years uh, has just rocked the church, but pastors in particular are feeling the brunt of that. And so your new book, A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders, is is really speaking directly to this question. And uh, if I remember correctly, I, I think, did you start working on this book before the pandemic locked everything down? No, um, no. So I, okay. um, I started, so 2020, um, I was mm-hmm. like, there's no way. I'm... So I'd released my book, Reappearing Church, in 2019, mid-year, yeah. I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. And then when the pandemic hit, I thought, there's no way I'm writing a book in lockdown <laughs> with homeschooling. Like, <laughs> no way. Um, so, like, nothing's going to happen in 2020. And then, um, you know, there was that classic moment where we thought, well, probably what we thought in Australia is we'll keep it out. Um, <clears throat> and we sort of ac- mm-hmm. achieved COVID zero. So it's like, it's going to keep going. I mean, I thought it would go for two or three years. Um, but, you know, I'll be able to have a much different life in 2021. And then everyone in Australia pulled that off pretty much except my hometown of Melbourne. And we went into an extended <laughs> lockdown. So I'd agreed to a book um, and then we went into lockdown. So effectively, it was written in 2021. Okay. So would you say, is the book um, sort of responding to what COVID and the lockdown has done to the church and leaders or... I mean, what, what, maybe t- just talk to, us about, talk to us about the impetus for a non-anxious presence. Yeah. yeah. Where did it come from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so COVID is really a small part of it. And, and I see COVID as a small part of a much bigger thing. It's the first phase in a, a significant change in the world. Um, and I noticed that COVID, though, was more of a sign of how people were struggling with this. Um, you know, I've been fascinated by, I think, the, the historical period that really sort of kicked off in 1989 with the fall of communism. And we entered into this strange space, um, which was, you know, economic growth and um, the world was peaceful and globalization and, you know, sole superpower in the world. And I think people did not realize how much that dribbled down into the whole of the culture. It shaped our leadership imaginations. And, you know, I was expecting, you know, disruption to come. Um, I didn't expect it to be a pandemic mm. straight away. Um, uh, I mean, there's other things I thought, you know, and there'd been interruptions, you know, GFC and, and different things. Um, but I was sort of thinking like we had to prepare leaders for something that was coming. So I've been tracking that that thought for mm-hmm. some time. 
and got a real sense in 2019 that a lot of my ministry, which people were just cottoning onto, was this sense of preparing people, how are you going to live in this post-Christian society, which is progressing towards, um, you know, this sort of secular future. And then in 2019, I began to get the sense mm-hmm. that that's going to change. So it was like, just as everyone's getting on board with that, it was like, no, no, it's all going to change again. And so I was getting all of these people <laughs> writing to me, how do we do this with post-Christian culture? And my big sense is post-Christian culture is about to get disrupted. And particularly what I felt too is yeah. the a lot of that conversation was happening in the United States. So like I think Europe and Australia, New Zealand, Canada had been having that conversation longer, but it was like it really caught on in the US. I think particularly around some things like, you know, gay marriage being passed by the Supreme Court and stuff like that. People are like, oh, wow, this is different. But I just had this mm-hmm. sense that the rest of the world, I mean, speaking from an American context, like the rest of the world was now going to influence America yeah. and America wasn't used to that. So post-Christian culture yeah. was going to be disrupted from the outside. Uh, and so COVID was an example of that. That's something that could happen in Wuhan uh, would radically reshape ministry. If you'd said that to people in 2019, they wouldn't believe you. Yeah. Okay. So I remember um, in this cultural moment, you talked about like this coming disruption. And I remember listening and thinking that makes sense. And yet, I like, I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, and it, it seems to me like the global supply chain issues are, are maybe something that you could have predicted there. Nobody could have predicted the pandemic. I mean, do you think that the, like the pandemic, do you see that as... Uh, what you were envisioning in some ways or or expecting might come? I think there was a number, a number of things that were coming down the road. So, you know, the pandemic was predicted, you know, there's Bill Gates, um, you know, video saying it's coming, there was Time magazine. So it was like at some point in the sort of roulette wheel of possibilities, um, a pandemic was going to come. Uh, and I remember being at Dubai Airport in like uh, 2017, 2018, and you know, waiting for a few hours and just looking around. Like Dubai Airport is the hub of the world, and just thinking, man, if if a, if a virus gets out here, like, oh my yeah. goodness, like it's going to be different. And and oh, you know, I, I've always been interested in the Spanish flu because my grandfather, um, you know, almost died in it, and as a boy, and you'd hear these stories of him, you know, in his school, his elementary school, we call them primary schools, being refitted as a wow. ward, you know. And that's so weird that that happened all over the world. So I I knew that was going to happen at some stage. I didn't, you know, I'm not going to say I was like, um, you know, predicting it was going to happen this time, but I did put a little bit in reappearing church sort of saying what would happen if a global flu happened more that was bouncing off the Spanish flu. Um, But I think probably what I was looking at was more um, the rise of China and just the, the reality that, the globalized world as we've understood it really since 1945 has been a result of the American um, domination of the world's sea lanes and creating a space where people can trade. And um, the fact that the China's GDP at some stage in the next 10 years will double that. Oh, sorry, will go past that of the US. No one's thinking about what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was just I was just thinking about how, you know, in our tribe, we you know, treat Tim Keller as the fourth member of the Trinity, right? We quote him so much. And so, you know, he's been talking about a, you know, what ministry in a post-Christian context context looks like for the better part of 20 years. However, I I almost feel like that kind of lulled us into a false sense of security because I think that was true and that has been true, but that was a, like a, uh, a, uh, 
like a, a distinction between like, okay, what are the, our cultural values versus like our culture as a whole, systemically, institutionally. And it was almost like 2020 kind of just said, hold my beer to that, uh, that, that thesis. And so, uh, and you, by the way, you described this, well, two things. One, you described this as the gray zone in your book, um, and this transitional period, but you even talked about this the last time you were on everything just changed when you were describing the difference in the, the switch from an institutional to a network world. So can you, can you kind of tie in these, those two concepts with what you're talking about? Yeah. So like, firstly, like I, you know, again, Tim Keller, I think his work's incredible. So I'm not like changing anything. Oh, and, yeah. You know, believe in, uh, I know you're not saying uh, that I'm challenging anything. It's just more, so I still believe the world of ideas and Christian engagement with the world of ideas and post-Christian ideas, they're out there, still really important. But I, the way I've described it, it's that that's like a software change and that is happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, you know, you may have that thing where you go onto a new, you know, Apple, I've got an um, Apple and they have some new, you know, operating system, iOS, yeah. iOS, you update it and, you know, sort of maybe it takes 15 minutes and then you sort of make a coffee and come back and it's all good to go. So it's a little bit disruptive. Hmm. Uh, if, if you were to change from a, you know, Apple Mac to a PC, it's going to change everything. Your email, like it's a software, sorry, it's a hardware change. And and what mm -hmm. I'm arguing is this software yeah. change has been happening for some time, but now we're going to a hardware change and no one's thought about that. Uh, yeah. No one even could envisage that that would really happen in how our world works. Um, totally. So what I realized too was that because we're going through this big hardware change in the world, which is on so many different levels, it's technological, it's, it's geopolitical, it's economic, um, it's environmental. Um, even uh, how the shape of cities have changed yeah, since tw in tw 2019. You know, I was in London a few weeks ago and getting on the tube at just after you know rush hour, and I'm in an empty carriage like in London, which is normally you're like sardines because wow. people are yeah. not working certain wow. days. You know, so people go in and sort of like Tuesdays, you know, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and sort of Mondays and Fridays, the city's empty, not empty, but you know, nothing like it wow. was. You know. Um, and, yeah. you know, downtown Melbourne's like that. That's happening all across the world. So there's these deep structural changes. So I'm, I'm using the phrase gray zone. Um, you know, you think of gray, it's, it's neither black nor white. It's in between. It's a mixture. And what I'm saying is that we're coming to the end of a phase. Now, mm -hmm. I was hoping to come up with some sort of, you know, whiz bang new phase. <laughs> but what I realize is we don't know what it looks like. We're seeing the end of a lot of things and we're seeing the birth of some things. But we're in this in-between space. It's this liminal space, um, really. And I think we're not good at that because if it was this clear new stage, right, here we are, we're now in the definite post-liberal, blah, blah, blah. This is what the world looks like. Here's all the markers. This is what the culture's like. Like we have multiple political visions operating. We've got multiple moral visions operating. We've got multiple, you know, geopolitical competing claims operating. And it's confusing. So I think a lot of what leaders and pastors are feeling is the confusion of living between two phases. And you can get tricked because, you know, the, my first three days in London, uh, I'm walking around going, well, there's, there's, it's like COVID almost doesn't exist here. Um, it's gone. Um, wow. I'm walking mm -hmm. around in big crowds. I then get COVID. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I'm like, oh, okay. So, I'm yeah, sure that was completely unrelated, by the way. Yeah, yeah just, exactly. Yeah. Walking okay. crowds without a mask. Who, who could imagine it? Um, and then, and then you think, I was there the Jubilee weekend, so there was there was crowds. But then I'm so like, oh, this is like I've gone back to the 2019 world. But then all of a sudden, I get COVID, and then I sort of emerge from my isolation, get on the tube, and I'm like, oh, it's empty on a Friday. This is weird. So it's like, 
old London still here. Mm. There's something new emerging. I'm in between the two. This is really confusing. So I was trying to capture that for people and name that because I think it's so mysterious and hard to label and people can't work out why they feel like this. But honestly, I've, I've talked to people in the last 12 months, every continent leaders are feeling like this. This is not just the Western thing. You know, I've talked to leaders in Africa, India, places like that. Everyone's feeling this weird in-betweenness. Actually, can you can you mm. feel that out more? Because like, I feel like one of the things that are, uh, man, I just, anytime I talk to another pastor, there's this kind of overwhelming sense of like, I think there's something wrong with me because I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one experiencing this. And so can you kind of talk about what some of those dynamics are that, that you're hearing from pastors and how that gray zone transition period is, is, is really different, not just from a kind of conceptual soft versus hardware, but like how, how that's actually impacting pastors and ministry leaders. Well, two, two levels to it. So the first one I think is just a really basic level. I was in, New Zealand last, not last week, the week before, and did a leaders event in all the three major cities and did one in Christchurch. Christchurch has gone through first, um, they went through a significant earthquake. That earthquake um, knocked down most of the spires of the churches. So the buildings that were mm. least earthquake resistant were the churches. Wow. So you had this thing where all of the churches lose their buildings. Yeah. You then have people leaving the city. And it's really interesting. Like one of the things I said when the pandemic started is everyone's going to think this is an event because we're used to events. Um, like this event happens for a week, captures the news attention, and then we move on because we're experiencing it really through our phones, through the news media. If I said, this is an event, this is a process. And you, when you're watching something from afar, it's an event, but when you're living it, it's a process. And what I found interesting talking to the yeah. guys, I, I've, mm -hmm. I've dropped that line in certain places and I dropped that line. I said, I think in Christchurch, you guys more than anyone after going through not just COVID, because we talk about COVID, but they'd gone through an earthquake. They then had the Christchurch massacre at the mosque, which is, you know, Christchurch is not a big city, which, mm. you know, rocked the city in a city which never thought it would have a terrorist attack. And then they had yeah. COVID, you know, and I said that line, what you guys realize that these sort of things like COVID and the earthquake are not events, they're processes. And you could hear the mm in the room. They knew that. And for them, the, the, it yeah. wasn't just here's an earthquake totally. and everything shakes and then we get up and dust ourselves off. Finding new buildings, your, con your composition of the congregation changed. And someone said to me there about five years after that, and you know, apologies if I'm not getting this all right, if there's any um, Christchurch listeners, but a lot of the pastors moved on after five years because leading through something like an earthquake where you're, you can't meet mm. in your building anymore, a lot of your congregation leaves, how do you redo it? That's happened across the city. The city skyline looks different. There's just a natural thing. If you go through like that, whether you're leading, a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talk, you know, talking to someone who works in emergency services and paramedics here. They're having burnout. Airlines are having burnout. Like there is burnout across our society because we've gone through a natural disaster. We've gone through the biggest global natural disaster, which may have killed, economists estimate, 16 million people in the last two years. So there's an element that I think we do need to give ourselves a little grace to go, we're pastors, we're burning out. Well, everyone's burning out because we've lived through two years of a massive multi-million people <laughs> killing natural disaster. And and what I remember reading about the Spanish flu was yeah. because of flu, you don't see it. Like if a massive earthquake, if an asteroid hit mm. the world and somehow we survived yeah. and 16 million people were killed and there was fire in the sky and buildings falling over, we'd all go, okay, we get this. We give ourselves a little bit of a break. 
But what tricks you about a pandemic is, and I remember, I remember reading an interview with a doctor who was working when SARS first happened. And he said, and this was the pandemic just began. So the first SARS, and he was saying, it's the weirdest thing. I'm going to these hospital wards where it's like a war in complete PPE. I get out and then I'm driving home and I'm watching people mm-hmm. walk through the park having their best lives. So there's disconnect. And I think we've all lived that. So that's the first thing I think. Yeah. There's an element where this is uh-huh. actually not complicated. We've been through a natural disaster and they suck and hurt. <laughs> and can I, I want to just ask, like, especially with the perspective in Christchurch, New Zealand, and that, that analogy with the earthquake and five years later, pastors are burnt out and they've, they've left. Is that, how are the, how is that being processed now? Like, is that seen as like a, an unavoidable thing? Is that something that they're like, you know, we could have done this differently and they're adapting to like, what are the takeaways from that in a, like, that's just really interesting. And that's one of the closest parallels I think I've ever heard to COVID. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, um, had some chance to speak to different people and I don't want to like speak into their experience because I'm probably not as au fait with it. But the sense I got was they felt like COVID is the third in a bunch of things that they've been working through. And it's been really tough. You know, the cathedral, um, I was in Christchurch just before the the earthquake happened and what marked was the cathedral and there's sort of a cathedral square there. And uh, Christchurch is a really pretty city sort of based a little bit on Cambridge in England. And um, I think, and, you know, there's still a temporary cathedral all this time after, you know, and so there's a sense of, I think, wow. of the temporary, hmm. um, but the church keeps going, you know, you get into a sort of rhythm. Um, so, yeah, so I can't speak to how they've processed that, but sure. the church is still there and, you know, there's yeah. leaders still there and people hmm. moving there and, you know, God keeps moving in those places. Mark, one of the questions that I feel like we often get um, in in light of the podcast, when we're talking about cultural change, you know, often pastors and friends will say, okay, that's really interesting, but like, what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> um, you know, we can hear the, the, you know, the analysis and it's insightful, but, but, but what about the application? Um, you know, how do we change our approach to leadership and ministry and church planting? And in a recent episode of Rebuilders, which is your podcast for those who, I, I don't know if it's how it's possible that anybody's listening to us and isn't familiar with your podcast, but th- there might be a, a person or two. They out should there. be either way. In a recent episode, you described uh, five dynamics that have been introduced because of this gray zone phenomenon that churches and pastors are going to have to wrestle with going forward. And and so I'm wondering if you could, you know, just briefly, I know you spent episodes on that, but could you briefly kind of summarize those five points for us and then maybe give us an example or two of how um, those have like shaken you in your leadership and in your church context and what, what changes you have made? I can't even remember them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here, here. I uh, let me tell you how quickly I wrote those down because uh, honestly, that was in so many ways they bridged into that question for for me of wrestling with like, okay, how do we do this differently? And so they were, uh, yeah. Number one, uh, discipleship capacity. uh, Two, discernment capacity. Three, the end of churn and burn which is a reference to the insane turnover that we that many pastors are used to having in their churches slowing down as technological and economic growth also slows for the great volunteer resignation which if you're a church planter that's not new uh five 
and five is the boomer apocalypse, uh, which the the drum the dramatic uh, naming of that I, I especially appreciate. So, oh man, yeah, and thank you for putting words to <laughs> what I think a lot of you know younger church planters are going. Oh my gosh, what is happening with the older people in our congregations? So yes, yes, I think I think it's really important to rethink how we approach these things. Like, I think um, speaking with love as someone with an understanding of American culture, often American culture will jump quickly to answers and, and solutions before finding the right questions. And so, I mean, here's the reality. Melbourne, Melbourne, one of the world's longest lockdowns, you know, we had almost two years and it's had a significant disruptive reality you know i was in adelaide which is another one of our cities recently and just was struck like people would talk about the pandemic and i thought you guys have not gone through what we've gone through um in terms of disruption going to the uk i saw you know australia was saved so much of the, because of our different strategies we were saved of the death toll of a place like england so it's been different in different places but you know we're in this really weird space where we've had lots of people leave the cities of melbourne and sydney um and you've had people leave and you're in this thing where people are still trying to settle we're in the midst of winter here in australia it's freezing we've got a flu raging flu season um everyone is sick you know my daughter was meant to see hamilton uh with my wife Mm. last weekend or something and you know it's cancer because like 15 of the 17 um uh cast or whatever were sick in some ways you know uh there's some huge amount of people just not turning up for flights because everyone's sick and sort of got new omicron strains are just going crazy at the moment so the disruption continues so we're still in the midst of this like in a sense we may have changed our social approach to it but disruption is still there um you know uh i think i think i heard when i was in new zealand saying something like 60 or 100,000 kiwis are going to move to australia from new zealand in the next few months because now the borders are open because of the job markets changing so that's you know we're getting kiwis doing up to our church and and like yeah. all of this is in play so i have these theories and i'm i then go into a church which is still in the washing machine of disruption um and that's true across my city and i think for many people listening so this thing's not over and whilst you know we may have all gotten COVID at different times and, and maybe we won't get again or who knows what the disruption is still going so for me i want to ask the right questions so that I move forward in the right way. And I want to think about what's it going to look like. Have you ever thought the question like, gee, if I'd known COVID was going to happen, I would have invested Mm -hmm. in PPE or (laughs) (laughs) bought Pfizer stocks or something, you know, like, 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 um, and so partly I'm trying to think that now. So like, like the boomer apocalypse thing for those listening who haven't heard that episode is effectively that, the boomers, I think in 2022, the average boomer hit 65, which is retirement age. So many are going to retire and the next five to 10 years, some mm. will get ill. And, and they'll, they've provided a tremendous volunteer impetus to the church um, and attendance. You know, backsides on seats is probably 75% of boomers across the Western church. Uh, that, will, that will disappear rapidly. Are you, are you saying 75% of churches are boomers or 75% of boomers are in churches? No. So I'm saying if you, if you turned up to, if I turned up to a church in Ohio, in, in Birmingham, uh-huh. in the UK, you know, in, in Malmo, in Sweden, and I just picked a random church on a Sunday, I'm going to encounter predominantly boomers. 
Gotcha. Okay. They yeah. they are going to go to be with the Lord, go to the retirement village, be able to volunteer less in the next five to ten years. The the fertility the fertility demographics of the West are about to go into significant of the actually the whole world is about to go into significant population decline. Part of the reason, the great resignation, yes, it is some people going, oh, let's go and find another job because I'm not getting meaning out of this. In reality, a huge part of it is boomers who are about to retire or around retirement age thought, you know, we're going to be locked down for the next two years. Let's just, let's just do it now. That's actually really what it's about. So the great resignation in terms of employment in, in the world is going to mm. conti- just continue as the boomers every year. There's going to be millions of boomers retiring and exiting the workforce. They're also going to be exiting voluntary organizations, including churches. Uh, they're going to be tithing less. Tithing will go down and institutional people sitting on boards, you know, and all this sort yeah. of stuff will, will go down and providing a lot of voluntary help. So that no one I know in the church is talking about that, that we could in the next 10 years decline a church attendance by 75% and uh, that's my rough number and tithing foundations, institutional volunteerism. Um, so hmm. I'm thinking, you know, how do we, how do we prepare for that? Yes. Yeah, so, so how do we prepare for that? Cause that was kind of the, the impetus for the question. And what I kind of want to do now is go just curl up in the fetal position in the corner and, <laughs> <laughs> Um, or polish my resume or something. So one thing I'm not saying is that boomers don't have a contribution. And actually partially me explaining this is I'm saying, I think we've underestimated how much the boomers have provided. So this is actually a a compliment. Um, What I'm also trying to do in all of this is I believe we've moved to a more networked moment where power is draining away from centralized authority. And in a more networked moment, answers are more in a web. They emerge from the bottom up. They don't happen in one place. The great sort of, um, you know, awakenings and Christian renewals that happened in the 18th century, they're not one person in one place. Yes, there are your sort of Whitfields, Wesleys, Jonathan Edwards, etc. But they are literally hundreds of thousands of people all over the mm-hmm. world um, who yeah. together are discovering these bottom-up answers to these problems. One thing I'm, I'm also trying to do is, and it frustrate, frustrates people slightly, is I would rather give people frameworks mm-hmm. and get them asking the right questions, which then equips whoever's listening to Rebuilders or whoever's listening to this or reading a book. I want to empower people to come up with these answers themselves. Like I'm more like this is coming, but I believe in a sense in the people of God, in the body, that there's a bunch of smart people hearing this stuff. There's a remnant who are staying around and they're going to come up with answers versus here's Mark Say's pulp, you know, pulp book that's going to have the 10 answers for the church in the next 20 years. You know, I don't have all the answers, but I think before we get to the answers, it's asking the right sure. questions. So, you know, I think some of the answers, how I'm thinking about it, you know, is the church needs to be leaner. There will be more buildings come on to, to you know, how would denominations go? I know that there's denominational leaders also listening to rebuilders. That's also why I'm saying this, who are going to be stewards of <laughs> multi-million dollar property portfolios. How are we going to use that? Sure. You know, um, mm. and, you know, how a church is not just going to assume, you know, I, I speak to Christian parachurch organizations. They're not thinking about this. So I'm trying to, in a sense, get people thinking about these answers now, which I know is frustrating when we want to jump to a solution. 
but we have to understand the frameworks out of which we're going to operate first. Well, and and I I mean, what pastor hasn't you know gotten the the question from a congregant after a sermon of so what and like what am I supposed to do with that and not responded in a similar way? So we certainly can't blame you for that. Um, but also, <laughs> uh, I, I really want to kind of I really want to riff on what you said about this kind of network reality we're in because. Uh, especially, I mean, your book is called A Non-Anxious Presence. And one of the first things to go who, you know, one of our, you know, spirit animals that we share, I think is, is Edwin Friedman. Um, and, and he talks about how one of the first things to go when you are uh, activated in your anxiety, and especially if there's a culture of anxiety, is imagination. And so um, in that vein as you have talked about this kind of emerging networked world we're in that has in a lot of ways is at, at best in a significant tension with institutions. One of the things I've been dying to ask you is like, okay, so I, I, I feel like some of the ways that you've talked about that transition and that cultural dynamic makes, would make me think that, um, Institute, you're saying institutions are either going to go the way of the dinosaur or, or maybe that they should, um, and, or that they should be changing in such a fundamental way that like, they're going to look really different. And so can, I, I would just love for you to in, interact with that because, uh, my own imagination is lacking on that point. Uh, like, what does that mean? Well, one thing I really do believe if, if, you know, Jesus doesn't come back in a century, People will look back in a century, and it may be not this decade or the decade to come, but they'll start to see how Orthodox Christianity in this networked approach began to discover a new way to live and flourish within the world that is emerging. I really do believe that. Why? Because it always happens. <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit's always at work. You know, you see this in moments sure. of crises, mm. um, you know, crisis precedes renewal. So I 100% believe that. And I'm trying to get people thinking with imagination. You look at this moment, like look at movies, Top Gun 2. Like, like we're going to run out of movies to remake and series to redo and remixes <laughs> to redo and Marvel movies. Like, and everything's yeah. just self-referential. What? Why do you got to yeah, include yeah. Marvel movies in that mix? Sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, fine. I've stepped on <laughs> oh, a second cow. It's okay. There is a profound lack of imagination <laughs> and a lack of hope really, of what mm. it is is in the world. You know, we've gone from hubris to a lack of hope quite quickly. And mm, so wow. I, I think three things need to happen with institutions. I'm not anti-institutional. Mm. There's always, I see it less as, it's almost like the first network discussions were, and I sort of tried to get at this a little bit in my book, Facing Leviathan, of, you know, the, the organic network versus the institution. I see mm. a more historical dynamic at play where there are institutions which form and centralized power to themselves, and then they disperse. Now, I think institutions are really important because what they do is they pass on values beyond singly one generation, and they're able us to spread a positive message that we believe in beyond both time and space. Mm -hmm. And um, so it can, it can help people on the other side of the world discover something, and it can help people in three generations continue that value. So they're really important. Mm -hmm. However, they also can suffer from decline. Mm -hmm. So there are institutions, three things are going to happen. First of all, there are institutions that do need to die because they've just completely died to their original core vision and, sure. and are now yeah. toxic uh, or just dead uh, or zombie. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
They, they're walking, but they're dead. Secondly, there are institutions which need to be reformed. Mm-hmm. Now, that requires tremendous discernment mm-hmm. because there are people I know, I've had conversations with, where people have given their entire lives to an institution to turn it around and in their later years go, oh, my goodness, I failed. You know, so what, what is God wanting us to renew? What is he wanting us to let go? That requires mm-hmm. tremendous wisdom and discernment. Thirdly, there are new institutions which will be birthed and there are new things which will begin. Um, all these things that we look at, um, you know, so many of the parachurch organizations, denominations, all these things that we just accept have always been there, are birthed at some point. And they were birthed in response to a particular cultural, political moment where the church, the people of God had to respond to something and something new began. So there will be new things birthed. So I think th- all those three things are going to happen. Um, uh, yeah, so that's my sort of take on, on institutions. So uh, I, it's it sounds like kind of what you're saying, and, and maybe the occur- encouragement or takeaway from this is for those who are, you know, trying to still figure out which end is up and, uh, and adapt to this very ever-changing environment, the encouragement you would offer, uh, it sounds like you're saying is like, you know what, this is opportunity and try to see it as opportunity, not as, not as a, the kind of constraint that can't in that, that would inhibit creativity or, in, or imagination, but the kind that is an opportunity for imagination and to not be afraid to throw something at the wall and see what sticks, but also maybe just to connect this with what you've been saying earlier, it's like, you know, what? also give yourself a hell of a lot of grace. And 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 go go hit that go hit those front lines and see see what happens. And and almost the way I'd, I'd I'd help try and help people to grasp this is it's a theological concept. Like I feel like almost what we've done is we've had this idea that there's all this stuff going on. It's it's crazy. But if I can just get a quiet place and a comfortable chair and sit there and finally push this all away, all this craziness and people and stuff and if I could just sit there, maybe I might feel the Holy Spirit's touch and presence and feel God and be in a good place. Now, Jesus does go to the quiet place, spending time with his father. But there's another, I think, biblical you know, vision of, you, you think of, the. I, I keep coming back to, I talk about it in the book, but it's just been this biblical image in my mind of the beginning of Genesis, of the unformed earth, the chaos, and the Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos. Mm. You know, you think of the craftsmen in the scriptures, the mm. first, you know, people who, who like build the tabernacle, the, the ones who get the Holy Spirit are actually people who are wrestling with the raw materials of earth. And and I think we've had these two visions of the Holy Spirit touching us. One is the quiet contemplative, who's got all their practices exactly right and all lined up in a chaotic world and can't control the outside world, but can control themselves. Or the great event moment, we're all got our hands up and it's all wonderful and the Holy Spirit falls on us. What if we need a sweaty, grinding, hard graft theology of the Holy Spirit who comes on glories on humans as they wrestle with the chaos of the world, stepping into their Imago Day calling to bring order? I think we need to rediscover that moment. So yeah, it, it's it's hard at the moment. It's frustrating. Sorry, you go. Wait, I'm <laughs> I'm sorry, Mark. It, it it it's almost like you're saying that the secular ideology that you talk so much about in this cultural moment of perpetual progress and moving forward. You mean that that might have been like somehow 
influenced our faith and our ideas of like how we are reliant and dependent on the Holy Spirit in the midst of this. And and maybe that's part of the problem that God is maybe, I don't know, maybe winnowing away from us in the midst of all of this. Yes. <laughs> sure. <Crap. laughs> Yeah, because I, mean, I really I, thought for a second that you had a camera in my office uh, yes. where I was trying to sit in that chair you're t- describing. So, yeah, and look, uh, I, you know, I've got a chair here in my office. Uh, you know, I sit over there, <laughs> and and yeah, I believe in in quiet time with God and stuff like that. But I I do have a sense that you know I was a big advocate of practices, and you know I still am. But you know, and part of I think our thinking around that last phase was the world's going to slowly progress, move into some post Christian world. And it's going to slowly counterform us from the ways of Jesus. Our phones are going to slowly algorithmically form us in their image. How do we have mm. counter practices that form us in the way of Jesus? I wrote about that. In our moment now, I think this is what I'm more trying, also trying to say to people. There's a phase shift. Hmm. you know. And, and I remember clearly a moment when the pandemic first started and we were in first lockdown. I bumped in. I was going, going for my walk and bumped into uh, a guy from our church, business owner, He's just like, how do I do this? Like, I'm, I'm having to work to keep this going because he employs people. You know, young mm. dad, I, he's like, I cannot get a Sabbath at the moment. And he's almost like, he's, he's wanting some grace from mm. trying to do practices in the midst of a pandemic. And, and so for me, practices in that are secondary things. They're not the bow of the ship. And, and I think what's, there's a danger at this moment that what we can do is we can retreat. The world's too chaotic, so I'm just going to control myself. Do you know mm. what I mean? And I think yeah. there's a tremendous therapeutic shift coming in the culture, which, yes, we need to talk about mental health. Yes, we need to talk about feelings. Yes, the, we've not always been good at that. But there's a danger that we go into this, the world's crazy, but we're going to, you know, and geopolitical conflict. And so I'm just going to deal with my inner world. Um, mm. But how, what does that look like if China declares war on Taiwan? And I, I, I like, and and all, you have no semiconductors, and all of you, the internet begins to fall down over the West. Like, so I mean, one quick moment. I, I, I one of the just striking things I saw was when the war in Ukraine first started, like day one or two. NPR put up this tweet, and NPR was like, just to remind everyone that you know your mental health may be affected while watching these images of war. Take some time away to go and just refresh away from your Twitter feed, and because we live in a network. There are people, Ukrainian people on Twitter who were like, I'm sitting in a bomb shelter. Right. I'm about to go to war. You yeah. arrogant, yeah. entitled Americans, you know? And, <laughs> and I think that that's the danger we don't want to be in at the moment, that we're talking about our inner worlds and that, and we need to do that. So I'm not talking about a binary, but there's a spectrum. <laughs> totally. And yeah. Mm. That's, a, that's a tension to manage for sure. We'll get back to the podcast in just a second. One of the challenges of our new cultural milieu is online static. There is just so much content, so much input, and most of it isn't helping you deal with this new reality in a constructive way. That's why we launched the Everything Just Changed newsletter. It's a short email that cuts through the static to let you know every time there's a new interview here on Everything Just Changed. Take 30 seconds now to click the link in the show notes and sign up. I want to kind of go in a direction that that is going to feel a little bit like a hard pivot, but I I really want to put this in the realm of the personal. And I I remember and heard you mention uh, on another podcast that that you have really wrestled with uh, bipolar disorder and how you have 
learned to appreciate aspects of that that thorn as as actually a blessing from God in your leadership. Um, I've taken medication for ADD for over twelve years. And mentioned uh, here previously that I spent about seven or eight months last year on an anxiety medic, anti-anxiety medication, and but I've always felt like that ADD was more disability than gift. And two, I've also come to realize I've <laughs> probably always fought some low-grade chronic anxiety uh, my whole life without really realizing it. And so, first of all, I, I just want to like thank you very publicly around that because. That vulnerability and um, was incredibly uh, helpful for me mm. to see things in a new light, um, and so I kind of just want to just maybe abuse the the privilege of being a podcast host and ask you like what what was it like, uh, especially uh, when we're talking about a non anxious present? What was it like to hear and accept that you had bipolar disorder? Like I, I imagine it was at least partially validating. Um, but how did that, how did you think about that and wrestle with that in terms of your calling, especially? Great question. Yeah. I think I, the, the, initially the diagnosis was a sense of help of like, okay, so this explains why everything seems to be off kilter. (laughs) Um, and, uh, the advice that was given to me too was like, you need to understand your limits, which has been one of the best things. Um, uh, I'll come back to that. What are those again? Uh, what, what's the limit? Oh, yeah, exactly. What are the limits? Yeah. Such thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I then was told to rest, you know, like you're going to have to have, I remember the words to me, you're going to have to have a quiet life. Just after I was told that we would discover we we're going to have twins. <laughs> and you know you need to sleep well you know rest have limits uh, have a quiet life and we have twins you know and and all that just got on top of me and and you know clearly we're planting we're planting the church and i'm i'm preaching and it came all on top of me on stage and i walked off stage in the middle of a sermon mm. and like so the, the horrible but a gift mm. horrible but a gift why because mm. It showed me that, you know, God, you know, if you have all these, these, you can in the preacher world or pastor world, you can have all these things that my public persona is something when it's completely gone (laughs) and you feel publicly humiliated in that way, all you can do is rely on the grace of God. So I think, you know, I remember, I remember walking out of the, the church, sitting in the gutter out the front and my brother came out and I just said, I've just blown my ministry. I have no cred left. So everything that that God has done since then is is building on this. This is not going to be me. This is going to be Him, and um, yeah. So you know, th- that was, I think, for me. But what I realized is, it was, and this is my personal journey. So I, I'm not saying this for everyone. As I really felt like I need to live as a witness with this. So how do I lead mm. through this? Mm. Um, and this has happened, so I need to lead well with this. Now, there was a stage, like, can I lead with it? I did ask that question. And there may be people listening if they have a similar thing. You need to ask that question, you know. Um, but I felt, how do I honor God through my living with this? I prayed that he would take it away. Um, but if he if he doesn't, chooses not to and allows me, you know, this is a thorn in my flesh, how do I live this to the glory of God? 
And what I felt was I want to be the healthiest person with this I can to show people who feel that this is some kind of death sentence that actually you mm. can flourish in the midst of this. The people of God throughout history have all been strange cats who have flourished with suffering. And, mm. and so, you know, I wanted to do that. And, and you know, so I really worked on that. You know, I wanted to be a good dad, good husband, good pastor, good neighbor, all of these things. And so, you know, I, I, that, that I realized had, had woven into my testimony and witness that I was living. What, what was mm. the hardest change you had to make just with all that? I'm sure there were many, but like, what was, what was the one that like sticks out? I think, it, I think it was limits, like, like in the sense of, you know, I, I probably didn't live well with limits before then in terms of pushing myself, you know, and, you know, I was not a go to bed on early type guy or at the same time. And, and I was not a routine. I saw myself as more creative, non-routine type person. And I had to live a very routine life, which is actually quite helpful for people with bipolarity. Mm. And that meant that I could not do, probably the hardest thing is there's a mental image of what a, a senior pastor looks like, who's an A-type personality, does heaps of stuff, incredible energy, can talk to everyone, just go night and day, and they just keep going. I'm like, you're never going to be able to be that guy now. But what a mm -hmm. gift now that <laughs> I can't. Because I, I decided I'm going to do a few things and do a few things well. Um yeah, that that's been the key, and, and and I just think like, look at this. You know, I really like travel. I'm gonna like, get real honest now. You know, for me to travel to the US or travel to England, you know, I have to be. I remember talking to a, a psychiatrist once, and and he was. I was at an event actually in LA, and he said to me, "You gotta be real careful with travel." I was like, "Yeah," because your mood and jet jet lag really messes you up. Mm. So I had to limit that. Mm. Um, so I'm like, oh God, you're calling me to this message to sort of your church in the world. I'm writing books. I can't travel like other people do. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah. look at me in the last two years. I've not traveled more than five, three miles from my home. And I've released the book and people are reading all around the world and it's helping people. That's not Mark's mm -hmm. amazing. That God can use you despite your limits. And I think we've got to question this concept of limitless energy, you know, bunny pasta. Oh man. I mean, I, I just can't help yeah. but think about a conversation we had with uh, uh, a therapist who specializes in, in counseling pastors. Uh, early on the pandemic, he said that like one of the things that this is going to do to pastors is it's going to expose how much we've been operating at superhuman capacities with the aid of technology and efficiency, et cetera. And our being merely human is going to feel and be experienced as subhuman. And, but we have got to, and, and, you know, you, it was Steve Cuss's managing leadership anxiety podcast where you were, I heard you discuss this. I mean, he talks so much about being exactly human sized and, mm. and I don't think you need to struggle with anxiety or bipolar disorder or ADD or whatever else to, to have an experience where, a, um, counter to your, uh, your <laughs> opting into it or, or being willing to participate, you've had your capacity significantly reduced and, and, and degraded into, in ways that have, you have no choice, but to, uh, to depend on God in a new and different way. I, we were, I was just texting with somebody who listens to this podcast regularly and he was just, just, talking about and describing that now that he has some emotional distance on sabbatical from, from his, his church, he's like, 
I want to make sure that I'm the right guy to lead this because I don't have any vision right now. I don't know. What, what does vision mm. casting even look like? And I, I don't know. I, I say all that just because I, I want to just reiterate my gratitude because I think that is a gift and insanely validating for pastors mm. who are like, I'm literally just, I'm shooting for faithful right now. And if fruitful happens, like mm. praise God, but I'm just kind of, you know, get doing this by the skin of my teeth. I just add, add something there. So just quickly, which might be helpful for the audience is I think it was Vaclav Smil, the energy scientist who said this, that efficiency and productivity you can do to an assembly line. So Henry Ford's assembly line in 1920, you can by 90% make that more efficient. So you've got robots building stuff in the Toyota factory now, right? And he said, we took that and then we applied it to humans. But you can probably, mm-hmm. and he's got all the data, I think I think it's him, and he says, you can only improve human productivity by about 20%. But we, we still treat humans like mm-hmm. an assembly line. You know, so you think all these hacks and and you know do this and morning routines and all that, and some of it's good. And look, I've you know read all the stuff, and I think of teachers. Sure. When, when my my reports when I was at high school, you know, were like a paragraph. You know, the teachers just had to write a paragraph. I'm talking to teachers now; they're just they're just burnt out because they're writing pages yeah. and they've got to be counselors and they've got to do all this. And we're constantly, constantly pushing people in in all kinds of things and and ministers and pastors to be super productive when you're only going to get a certain amount out of people. So the kingdom of God is not going to mm. break out more because you've improved your productivity by 2% more. <laughs> that may help you. But, you know, <laughs> Jesus is not there going, here's how we yeah, product, you know, yeah. efficient kingdom of God distribution mm. across the whole world. You know, like <laughs> it, it's when we rely on the power of God and our powerlessness and and I mean it's mm. a it's a silly book in some ways, but Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, which you know, like you read the first page and chuck the rest out. But but that question <laughs> where he says, you know, if you only had four hours to achieve everything that you want to achieve, what would you do? Is actually a fantastic question. Mm. Yeah. Set in the fetal position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So Mark, I, I feel like what you've just shared. Um, kind of shines a different light than than I was anticipating. But I, I wanted to reference mm. a, a section in your book where you're talking about the constant temptation to stay in in comfort zones, which you call strongholds. And, and I'm going to read a quote. You you wrote to make this as clear as I can. It's the stronghold of self, the pursuit of good feelings. The assumption is that the strongholds of the stronghold of the of our world is there to deliver you the good fruit of a pleasurable life. These factors are leaving a whole cohort of leaders dormant, awaiting an activation that will never come while they stay in their comfort zones. Because if you're going to grow in spiritual authority, the seed of renewal must be activated within you. Um, I, I, in light of what you've just said, I, I'm now anticipating this going in a totally different direction. But I, it, it sort of strikes me that that doesn't just apply to leaders, but I mean, to most um people in majority culture, uh, Western churches. And it seems like most of the pastors that we know are fighting to try to wake their churches up to the spiritual reality that the stronghold of self exists and has a hold over people. And it it feels like there's a losing battle. And I'm wondering how, um, 
you know, how everything that has changed in the last two years might um, actually present a new opportunity to try to wake people up <laughs> to that reality. What do we need to do differently um, as leaders in order to, um, yeah, just shine light on the reality uh, that, that we're actually facing? So in some ways, um, it's not a Western thing in the sense that I read authors from the West 100 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, and they don't talk like this. You know, um, they expected suffering. They didn't sure. expect an amazing sort of self-actualization. Something yeah. has come into yeah. the culture with this. So it was an idea, but then it was a structural reality, as we've spoken about. The mm. most peaceful, prosperous era in history we've just lived through, and many experts I'm reading think it ended in 2019. Now, this is where I bring the second thing. The environment is a helpful discipler. The environment that you live in is a helpful mm. discipler. Now, we mm. are about to have a significant population decline. We have significant uh, environmental challenges, uh, which are only going to you know get more intense. Um, we have significant economic issues coming before us. We have real potential geopolitical issues coming before us. Um, all of a sudden, you know, McDonald's here in Australia is putting, and, and KFC are putting cabbage instead of lettuce in their burgers because lettuce is now $10 a lettuce or $9 a lettuce. In England, I saw on on, um, on the news, you know, they're teaching people how to make butter because butter is becoming super expensive. This is, this couple of things happen here. Either inflation keeps going up and it's going to get harder to buy things. Mm. Um, the head of Ryanair, the Irish discount uh, uh, jet, so you know, jet airline, just said the era of discount travels over. Mm. You know uh, that airline, you know yeah. the world as we have yeah. understood it. You think of there was a great um, article called uh, in a paper here called "The End of the Millennial Subsidy Lifestyle." And people, oh yes, the, <laughs> did you tweet this? I think I might have tweeted it. We I'll put it up okay. somewhere. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, that was so that, good. Your Uber, people don't realize, is subsidized with debt. Netflix is subsidized with debt. Peloton subsidized with debt. All of these things, these startups have been trying to do an Amazon where we'll just mm -hmm. run at a loss for 10 years, but they're now falling over. Um, we're seeing here in Australia mm -hmm. all these startups which are promising like, we'll deliver food to you in 10 minutes. It's like falling over. So all of that to say, it's a very good bet that we're going to see a decline in, in living standards. Mm. all of your options are going to decrease. It's not just the pandemic. They're going to decrease. Now, are we going to return to, you know, like Mad Max? No, but we might return <laughs> to more what it looked like in the 1980s. Um, and I did love that you used a remake, though, yeah, uh, yes. to illustrate yes, that. Yes, so just true. to point that out. True. Um, so now, like, if you grew up in the 1980s, that might not be much of a shock. But if all you've known is that things are going to get better, um, we have multiple bubbles mm. now. They're going to pop at some stage. Um, so I see now that pastors are perhaps learning how to lead in difficulty so that in the future mm. they can lead people through more difficulty. Mm. What an encouragement. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, this is, this is a little bit of a different question, but... I've been wondering about this and I just, this feels like the perfect kind of follow-up to, to what you've just mm. said. It, 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 um, I've been wondering about this question of like, what is the symptom versus what is the cause? 
And um, I remember in this cultural moment, you describing, you know, the kind of the world that many of us are living in where you've got beautiful design and great coffee, but everybody is struggling with anxiety. And that was before the pandemic. And if anything, it feels like those symptoms are more pronounced and, and, and obvious now. And so you think about things like the polarization um, that it's funny, like I've been rewatching um, Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, which came out around 2010. And, and they're describing this insanely chaotic political culture in America. And I'm like, that feels tame compared to what Seriously. we've lived through in the last you know, two, three, four years. Um, so polarization, supply chain issues, inflation, relational tensions, but all of these in some ways, they feel to me like symptoms. And I, I'm wondering if you have a sense of like, what are the actual root causes? The root causes are the normal state of affairs that we're returning to. So we've been in an absolutely abnormal era. We're in an abnormal era mm. of peace, no pandemics, <laughs> um, politics being mm. absent. We're in the Seinfeld era of it's a show about nothing. We were in a historical period about nothing. Mm. And now we're returning to, if you read history, what we're entering into is just what history has always looked like. So this is the human condition. We had a mirage mm. over the human condition. Yeah. And what's happened is the, the, the sort of tarpaulin has been lifted off and the things that have always been part of the human condition, the mirage is not working anymore. So I would see that, you know, for all of mm -hmm. sin and fall short of the glory of God, that is the, that is the cause. And that's playing at a personal, geopolitical, every yeah. level. But we tried, we almost could, because of the magic of the moment, hide that. But there's a massive evangelistic and discipleship opportunity that that mirage is now falling. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, mm. I, I take your point there, but I, I think one of the things I'm thinking about with that question is I remember saying like first week or two of the pandemic lockdown, like kind of having hope that this was going to cause the church to like rise to its better self. And maybe we've been, we've been sleepy and, and this is going to awaken us and, and the church is going to just shine in this time where everybody's suffering. And we even made a, we even made a list of all the potentially like the potential blessings that could come about. <laughs> yeah, there's probably like an early an early episode yeah. of this podcast that where we talk about some of those opportunities. And I do think they were opportunities. I just think that almost exclusively, at least American Christians did not avail mm -hmm. themselves of mm -hmm. those opportunities. And and so it seems to me, you know, I love this the whole concept of resilience is not you know avoid trouble. It's when something hard happens, you bounce back stronger. And it seems like the church has the resources uh, to do that, uh, you know, based on the hope we have in the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit alive and at work within us. And yet, anecdotally, we're seeing, statistically, we're seeing uh, the church not responding in those ways and I, you know, I, I guess I almost wonder if some of it is, you know, you just said a moment ago, like 40, 50 years ago, there wasn't this, like everybody, Christians expected that suffering was going to be a part of life. And now we expect that we're not going to suffer if we follow Jesus. 
and being faced with that reality, it's like we're just totally unprepared. And so now we're all anxious and stressed and angry at people and exhausted. Yeah, I, I think one thing we need to move away from is this thing. Like there's not one. I think we're always looking for the trend. There's 50 trends. Um, and, you know, let, let's look at the 17th century where there was an English civil war country went massively polarized. The Puritans and the sort of Protestant church was, you know, in the midst of that. And you had multiple things happening. You had a polarization, which led to a civil war, which Christians were involved in. You had battles between Anglicanism and Presbyterianism. You had then this weird things emerge out of Puritanism where you had like ranters and diggers and all these bizarre, like, like people, you know, there's people who were rocking around naked and people taking multiple wives and just all craziness happening. Um, but then there was a remnant in the midst of that. You know, I mentioned Wesley Whitfield, um, you know, before. Like in the midst of that, there was this renewal. But there was a bunch mm-hmm. of other crazy stuff happening and injustices and all kinds of crazy stuff. There's never one thing. There's multiple things happening. A few weeks ago, I was sitting with a group of Iranian church leaders who are in contact with, you know, what's happening with the Iranian church and the Iranian diaspora around the world. And, and just stories that are like they're from the early church. Um, you know, that, that is happening right now. And, um, so, you know, there are incredible things. So like, you know, in, in our, in our local area, I I would say our churches haven't always been super unified, but during the pandemic, the police, uh, when we couldn't go anywhere, the police came to the churches and said, we're visiting lots of people, checking on them. Um, how, how can we help them? Can you, can the churches give us packs of food to, to give to the poor? in our city and then the churches because they couldn't meet in the halls one of the bigger churches opened up the space and all the churches like catholic churches pentecostal churches evangelical churches all were bringing food and the police were taking food to people's doors um that then started a prayer movement where people then started praying because we couldn't like do anything so people were prayer walking and we had like over five six hundred people from all different generations prayer walking that's one story of the church availing itself well but then there's other stories of churches in this area where they were torn apart by different things around polarization. So I don't think there's ever one thing happening. I think we've got to get beyond that. That's why I talk a lot about a sure. remnant that mm-hmm. in the scripture, in, mm-hmm. the, in it's always a remnant of people, uh, you know, who, 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 who do this. The whole church is never going to get it. Honestly, mm-hmm. there could be a nuclear war and Australia is like, say, the only place left in New Zealand and we'll end up fighting over something stupid. The church, like uh, it would happen. It's not going to, even that is not, we're not going to have like, we're not saved through suffering. Mm. We're saved through the suffering of Christ. But sometimes as C.S. Lewis said, God speaks to us and we hear it in suffering. But World War II, the Holocaust, all of this stuff didn't create, it did create a bit of a bounce for the church after World War II, but it didn't create a renewal or revival necessarily. Mm. So I, I think there's an element where, Perhaps it's always the remnant and perhaps the the sort of Western church, which is pushed into self. And dare I say, perhaps even the American church, which has been at the front of influencing the world. Maybe there's a time to actually step back into a position and, and step into a learning position of what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, I, 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 I sat, me and Trudy, my wife, sat with a woman recently and heard her story of being in an Islamic context and giving up her child, a court saying, give up your faith or your child. And she refused to give up her faith. And 
you know, in that oh. story, I'm expecting the story like, oh, and then 15 years later, she's reunited with her child. And then me and Trudy realized our cultural programming is, oh, we're waiting for the good news story. And it's like, no, I haven't seen it since. You okay. Know, yeah. I, I, man, one, I, I don't, I don't know how you can hear that and not just like grief on the spot. Um, and I think that that, that flies so in the face of what you diagnose rightly in this book as uh, one of the biggest challenges, like the, one of the upstream, it almost, it, it's not so much a, a barrier to deeper faith as much as it is, it kind of precludes it. It almost inoculates us against even being able to imagine a scenario like that. And it makes sense in light of our faith. And, and, and that is this idea of individualism. Um, it, it, you have this, this quote, I have literally read at least a dozen times just because I, it's, it's crazy to me how accurate it is. He, you said as individuals formed with the values and ideology of individualism, freedom, and self-expression, we live in a world where we are subject to large scale forces beyond our control. Like if that's not an example, I don't know what is this tension gives rise to what academic Timothy Melly labels agency panic which he defines as an intense anxiety about an apparent loss of autonomy, the conviction that one's actions are being controlled by someone else or that one has been constructed by powerful external agents. And then a little later you say, in our disconnection from God, we rebel against responsibility, relationships, and life-giving rules. Thus, anxiety and interdependency live in a codependent relationship. We are so upside down in the West and especially in the American church. Uh, we think that um, freedom in ways that like I felt attacked when you were talking about sitting in your chair and just having some space. I just need a little bit of autonomy to not have to respond to that email. And if I just had a little bit more freedom, then I could really feel connected to God. And And what you're saying, both with your illustration and in this quote, is that that is just a lie. We are codependent with anxiety, uh, between anxiety and independency. And so I, I just, <laughs> I have no idea how you'll, how, how to even ask this, answer this question, never mind ask it, but how do we break this cycle um, when, uh, two things, one, it, as Bryce was talking about and asking you just a minute ago, it seems like um, at every point where we think like, okay, this will be the breaking point where we wake up and do things differently. And we keep passing those mile markers without even blinking. And then secondly, when also at the same time, attachment to the church and community is an all time low, uh, no matter really where you're talking. If you think about the universal church, and then you think about the local church, we're, we, we are part of the universal church. You know, we are in two different countries talking, part of the yeah. universal church. And we could have someone join us from Fiji. And, you know, that's the universal church. What I realized is it's been really difficult to connect with the, the universal church for most people throughout history because they lived in a local place, didn't travel much. And your expression of faith was through a local community. And then individualism comes in, this great movement in the world. We're able to move. We have that autonomy. We have that freedom, particularly in the West. And that happens at the same time where technology enables the resources of the universal church to seemingly sustain us offer us incredible sermons, uh, books, podcasts, uh, all of these things. 
And wow. the pandemic then comes along and fast forwards that like yeah. hugely. So you're not just you're not just listening to the Hillsong Worship album and downloading that that sermon and following that practice and doing that online course. You're then doing that for your actual local church, which again, not, I'm not making a dig. I I did it and I would do it again, mm-hmm. you know, because that's all we could do. But but people are emerging and it's a trend that was already at play. Where they're now like, totally. I'm a universal Christian. So this is when you have people come to church like, love what you guys are doing, but totally disagree with that theological thing. And I'm not going to agree with you because, you know, over here they're saying this. And but I want to be part of a church, sort of. I want to commit, but not to that bit. <laughs> so long as it contributes to my identity. Yeah, yeah. So um, and that bit doesn't align with my identity. So yeah, what I realize is it's the complete opposite. When I first started. <laughs> My plant, you know, like the plant that we did out of our church, like I, I could put on a, a dinner and I would get 50, 60 people turn up. People like just turning up, like, who are you? I just came tonight because people wanted community. It was the age of the community church. Community, 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 relationship, relationship, relationship. If I'd said to them, let's do Sabbath, let's do practices, they would be vomiting, you know, like, ah, no way. That's religious, <laughs> yeah. man. Come on, we want spirituality. I just realized the other day, it's completely flipped. People yes, want yes. people mm-hmm. want that practice. They want their Sabbath. They want their, even unchurched people dig some of this stuff. And then I'm like, well, okay, so let's build community. Turn up every week for the next ten years. Be like, now they're vomiting about that. So oh, part of the sort of plausibility <laughs> structure of the church moving yeah. forward is we need to find a way. And I'm not going to answer this just yet. Like I, I'm not going to now, but I'm getting the right question. I don't think we've realised it's flipped. That what what is the what is the value of um, you know being part and and I think the value I see it is that you cannot grow as a disciple with just the universal church because you will cherry pick. Yes. Um, yes. Th- th- that you need to do that and just turn up and turn up and turn up and do that in a relational matrix. You know, my friend Roshan Allpress is a who's a. Mm. Principle of Laidlaw College in New Zealand, you know, he talks about this and he says, what happened in the 18th century? This, there was a renewal, but also there was a way of belonging to the church at a time when classes were being turned upside down, globalization was being turned up and down. You know, someone who's in England could find themselves all of a sudden in New Zealand, um, you know, or someone who's find themselves in Africa all of a sudden is find themselves as a slave in the Caribbean. And this incredible thing happens where there's a worldwide movement where these people can belong. I keep thinking about this story. I read it in the mm. pandemic, just near here. When Melbourne were first settled, there was the city, which is a little bit that way. And this is when the city was smaller. And then here was this tremendous forest. Three families moving or three groups. One is a guy who's a, a post, he's the postmaster. He comes from Surrey in England. There is another family which come from England. And then there's a freed African-American slave who is freed by Quakers, put on a boat to get as far away from being captured and sent to Australia. And they move into this forest. They discover each other. And what's fascinating, these people from these completely different worldviews, they all have Methodist backgrounds. (laughs) And this is the 19th century. And that triggers some primal ecclesiological Mm. memory in their brains. And then they start form a little house church and they're meeting on the veranda of one of those houses. And you have the, this incredible little line where it's like they have church and then the freed African-American slave is talking to the postmaster, Englishman talking to an American in Australia in their new, this new land, and they're talking about how the civil war's going. And for me, 
I'm like, wow, something happened in the 18th century where they created a way of belonging. And these people then built a church with their bare hands. They had no minister, mm. built a church, dragging these big rocks. It's still there out of the creek and birthed a church because they had this plausibility structure of how to be the church. We need to do that again, and we need to rediscover what that is in our time. That's the right question. Have I got the answer yet? No. But the question is, how do we gather people in mm. discipleship communities where they intergenerationally disciple their children for the next four generations with a new imagination of what it is to be the church in this time? Same, you know, I'm not saying change theology, anything like that. That's the great task that's before us. If, re- if crisis precedes renewal, then love precedes the birth of the body. That, that's beautiful. I love that. I'm so stealing that. That's that's fantastic, Mark. Uh, I, I gosh, I'm going to ask one more question. I'm tempted to just kind of end with with what you just said, uh, but I, I want to read a um, just sort of ask you to reflect on a maybe a hopeful quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you you wrote um, you were not created to remain paralyzed in anxiety. You were not created to offer an anxious crowd quick fix solutions and a panacea for their lostness. You were not patterned after heaven to retreat into a comfort zone. You were made in the image of God to bring chaos into order as you act as a channel of God's will on earth. The spirit manifests the pattern of heaven in the world, and we mediate that pattern as God's workers in creation. So that's that's beautiful. And then you also say, I'm hit by the sense that everything is going to change. Um, so thanks for the, the shout out for our podcast, by the way, but <laughs> it was implied. Um, so in, in light of those two ideas that, that were not created to remain paralyzed in anxiety and that even greater anxiety inducing change is likely still on the way, what kind of final word of encouragement can you give both to pastors that are navigating these waters and also to congregations that are trying to na- you know, figure out what the heck is going on? Uh, to help them navigate that change with greater peace. In the final scene of Planet of the Apes. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Charlton Heston and um, has, I can't remember the the sort of, he's got his girlfriend on the back of their horse and sort of, you know, they're wearing skins and they come across the beach and there's the remnants of the the Statue Statue of of Liberty. Liberty. And it's sort of remnants of this fallen civilization. And, you know, part of me, you know, you think about that, like if, you know, you go forward and what, what are people going to look back at, you know, bits of plastic, mm. you know, I look today on Twitter, you know, and there's some big brouhaha about, you know, people are trying to cancel Margaret Atterwood now. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, because she didn't include certain minorities in the handmaid's tale and stuff like this. And there's this massive war going on and, you know, trying to cancel her. And, you know, I looked at this and I just thought, man, it, the culture is moving so quickly now and the crowd is so anxious and the battles are not even between left and right. They're increasing between left and left and right and right. And, you know, no one is going to look at this in five weeks and remember it. Like like the, the, the seemingly most important things at the moment, Charlton Heston is not going to discover on a beach because they're so ephemeral and so pointless <laughs> There are people who 10 years ago, or not 10 years, but, you know, six six years ago were calling themselves liberals on Twitter who now are being described as arch conservatives. I know people have swapped sides. Like, it's ridiculous. Very little of this is going to stay. So pay less attention to it. It's a massive vacuum, mm. you know. 
and and it's a, it's a mob, and people will believe different stuff. Uh, Trump has been a divisive figure. Um, he may be forgotten. You know, Silvio Berlusconi, who was very much a Trump-like figure, who divided Italian politics. Um, you know, there's a stage where he sort of became irrelevant. You know, and and even his own supporters didn't want him anymore. The, the landscape's going to change. Things change really quickly. The world's mm. going to look very different. So don't get invested in the ephemeral moment and the opinion of an ephemeral crowd in this moment. Instead, divert your eyes to the remnant. I guarantee anyone who is listening mm. somewhere, there is a small group of mm. people that you are in relationship. Maybe they're in your congregation, maybe they're not. But they're around you, maybe the other leaders to sustain you, who want a heart for renewal. I can say one thing. I've barely traveled in the last two years. As I mentioned, I've just gotten on the planes. But I just, one thing I put out early on was I said, there's somewhere in the world, there's a cohort of people who God's calling to himself. And in the last two years, I have had people from all over the world say, it's just me. This is not happening to my friends, but something is happening. My friends are walking away, but I feel drawn closer. Yeah, I'm hurting. Yeah, I'm, I'm stressed. Mm. I'm tired. I've been mm. homeschooling or I've been mm. sitting in an apartment by myself in lockdown, but God's doing something in me. Uh, you know, I've had the thing of like getting back on the road and having people come up to me and they're literally just weeping. And it's not because they're meeting me. It's literally like you've articulated something the Holy Spirit's doing in the world. So I would say these people are out there. They're seeds. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think of the image this morning. Um, I had to go and get my laptop I'd left at the office last night for this meeting and at 7.10 I, I drove to the office and I could see it in the across you know we started a new morning prayer and uh, we've do, been doing that at night it's been going well started a new morning prayer and I'm like oh, that, I remember driving the, oh that's on today who's going to be there I thought maybe no one that was my like back to the old days of you know like no one's going to turn up this mm. stuff and then I pull into the car park and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell the amazing story. There was a thousand people there. There was six cars. There was six cars, but I just saw a crack through the door. I could see them. And I thought, wow. In the midst after all of this, yes, there have been the people who've walked away, but here's mm. six people in Melbourne, Australia, praying that God will do something in his church. That is happening all across the world. Mm. Find the few, find the faithful few. That's your ministry task for the next season. That is such mm. a gift and an encouragement, especially... Amen. Uh, one, of the, one of the most encouraging verses has been when Jesus says that he's going to build his church and that the gates of hell won't stand against it. And so by definition, that which has does not endure and does not last is not necessarily his church. And that is that that reminder that like to to keep our eyes off of the things that have that that don't last and to focus on whatever small seed, mustard size or otherwise, uh that's that's needed and good, um, Mark. I um I remember thinking uh, over the last week uh, about this interview and being like, you know what, Brad, just set your expectations low because there's no way we could surpass how incredible uh, the first time we had a conversation with you was. And I this is one of the few times I'm really okay with being wrong. Uh, so so thank you uh, for your vulnerability <laughs> and your humility and and just you know, stewarding your gifts in, in such a way that it is, it really is a gift to, to the global church and um, your perspective is invaluable. So thank you so much for joining us. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. 
All right. Now that we've had all of 30 seconds, <laughs> the uh, fire hydrant of of wisdom and what just happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, Bryce, besides the answer of, well, everything, uh, what just changed for you? <laughs> yeah, gosh, I just really like Mark a lot. You know, I mean, his his ability to um, kind of just lay bare, like th- his perspective, like this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he just can clearly lay out um, kind of what's happening on the ground culturally in such an insightful way where you're like, yep, that's actually totally accurate. Even like the point he made about, about the, uh, the uh, boomer apocalypse. And like, I had sort of said that in a, it, like almost, I respond almost jokingly <laughs> like boomers suck. And he's like, no, I'm not saying that. Boomers suck. <laughs> he's like, I'm just no, saying they're, underappreciated. That, like, they're getting older and they're not going to live forever. Yeah. And they have been like, booing the church for a generation and all we do is complain about them so and it's like like oh hey gosh, bryce just I'm, to give you some freedom you're gen x so you get by it honestly yeah right so <laughs> i'm i'm not just like um also like you know i feel like okay this isn't even what i was gonna say but uh, you know just <laughs> respond to that. <laughs> it's like now i feel like a terrible human being and i'm terrified about the future <laughs> So thanks, but also I, think I can't he did what he was intending that. to do then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but okay. So here's what I, I took away. I don't think Mark said this word, but I felt like one of the through currents of so much of what he has said is just talking about the virtue of patience and, uh, you mm. know, wh- whether that's, um, you know, when he's talking about the role of institutions and what institutions do is they maintain things for g- multiple generations. Yeah. Um, and, and so some of the work he's talking about is renewing or building new institutions that are going to do that work, but that's just long, slow work. And he said, um, at one point he said, we've gone from hubris to a lack of imagination really quickly. And yeah. I just thought, man, that that is such a, you know, again, like Mark Sayersism, capturing what has happened in you know the last 15, 20 years culturally. But it can be so tempting in leadership and in ministry to respond by like, okay, so let's do something about that. And and I feel like so much of what he's saying is like, focus on discipleship, focus on evangelism. It may feel like everything's going crazy and everybody's leaving, but everywhere God is being faithful and lean into those people and being patient. And, and I, it just kind of hits me. I, um, I, you know, I was on a, um, a canoe trip with one of my sons last week, and most of the trip I was in the back where you kind of control the direction. But the last day, I'm like, I'm just going to let, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to have my son in the back where I'm paddling, but he's really controlling where we're going. And one of the things that kept happening was the, his just tendency to overcorrect. You know, we're going left. And so he like corrects and then we're going right. Mm-hmm. And we just zigzag all the way, you know, back down the, some people paddled five miles. We paddled eight miles, you know, that last section of the river. But I just kind of kept saying to him like, patience, like it's slow corrections. We don't need to overcorrect here and swing, swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme. And I just, I think that that is such a, you know, uh, not terribly American perspective, but just <laughs> so helpful. Uh, totally. For us. 
in this moment. Yeah. How about Man. you? What, what, uh, what changed for you? You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like I really keyed in on something very similar, but my entry point was really different, right? When he was talking about the churches in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and I wrote this down because it just hit me. He said that the buildings that were least earthquake resistant was the churches. And, and just, just like my first instinct in hearing that was like, great, this is an opportunity. We need to redesign for uh, earthquake resistant. And like, we got to figure out that. And there's some learning here and some research to do. And, and then he said that he was just there recently and there are temporary steeples set up. And I was like, huh? Yeah, I thought you said this was like at least five years later. And just that idea that there would be for five years something temporary and and not necessarily like, you know, this kind of flag planted in the ground, like we have changed, we have learned from this and we've done this. And, it, and, and they're still, you know, five years on not incorporating that is, is like you just said a minute ago, like that's not a very American thing to do. <laughs> right. um, and, and, and that felt so connected to me to the business um, owner he was talking about who was looking for grace mm-hmm. and not being able to, to do the practices that he had done. And, and I just kind of kept like the, the common denominator for me in that is just is like the, the phrase that kind of came up in my, in, in my mind was just, just show up mm. like, and that's actually enough. Yeah. Just show up and don't, don't carry the weight of having to be Christ in building the church. If you're a pastor and if you're not a pastor, you're, you're, you're uh, an attendee or a member or a Christian at a church, just show up. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to like pick up and resume all of the things that you were doing pre pandemic. Never mind. God, I don't know. I just, I, I think that the the gift that he was describing, both in what you're reflecting on and those other aspects I was just was just describing, is just man, that's right. Like that's actually like, you know, if 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 we're supposed to be still and know that the Lord is our God, that has to apply to our fixing, our innovating, our planting, mm-hmm. our our mission, our worship, mm-hmm. our our practices or lack thereof. And I, I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah. I just really appreciated that reminder of how, how deep that goes. That's not yeah. just a trite, uh, platitude. Well, and you know what, how, how that's super just clear in the conversation we just had is, is when I asked him like, what do we do? And he's like, I'm not going to answer that question for you. Let's just talk about what the right question. Yeah, I was totally hoping we would like hold his feet to the fire on that. Right. And And like a ninja, he's like, no, no, no. We're talking to Yoda here. Could you just tell us what to do? (laughs) And he's like, right questions you must ask. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. He was right. He said, uh, right questions you are asking. Um, uh, No, this is so true. Um, And I, there is this temptation, like he was talking about in, in his trip with London of like wanting to kind of move past this in ways that deny reality. Mm. Uh, and that's something we're really good at as Americans, whether you're talking about the left or the right in ways that it actually is feeding the polarization. So what does it look like to be uh, salt and light? It means 
stop denying reality and and sit in that being still waiting for God. And and I just last thing, I just I can't help but but realize and and just note that his ability to maintain that and our, never mind articulate it totally. is absolutely rooted in the thorn that God has given him absolutely. with bipolar yeah. disorder and and just yeah. the wrestling it's it is it's an incredible fruit that I'm man I'm just I'm really thankful for him thanks for listening if you found everything just changed compelling please rate and review the show so that more people can find it the podcast is hosted by Bryce Hales and Brad Edwards. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. Theme music is by Danny Rankin and David Rigel designed our logo. We look forward to talking to you next time on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.